Hey, I want to thank you so much for your prayers last week. I had the opportunity to go to South Dakota. I'd never been to South Dakota. I actually went to South Dakota, I went to Iowa, and I went to Minnesota by mistake. I drove through South Dakota. I actually, actually, actually drove on into Minnesota without realizing where I was until I saw the sign, Minnesota. And I realized I'm not going to Minnesota. This is, this is not good. So I turned around. Anyway, flew into uh, Rapid City on Thursday. The pastor of Calvary Chapel of Rapid City picked me up, took me to Mount Rushmore, saw the buffaloes. Lynn was telling me about the buffaloes. I saw the buffaloes and the wild turkeys and all of that in Custer State Park. And then I spoke on Thursday night at the Calvary Chapel in Cedar City, uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. Then got up the next morning and drove across the state. Drove through the Badlands. You ever heard of the Badlands? You ever seen those cowboy movies? I mean, I drove right where John Wayne used to ride his horse, I'm sure. Right through the Badlands and crossed the state to Sioux Falls, and then we went down into Iowa, and we did a men's retreat down in Iowa, and I got to teach Friday night and three times on Saturday, and then came back and spoke at the Calvary Chapel Sioux Falls on Sunday morning. A wonderful fellowship of believers, uh, just, just had a, a super time, and, I, and whenever I, I teach at another church like that, I always like to teach on Job. I always like to teach on Job. There's such important lessons in the book of Job. And so we, we had a, a, a Bible study on the book of Job. As a matter of fact, you know, as soon as we finish Matthew, that's where we're headed. Right back to the Old Testament to pick up where we had left off with Job chapter 1. So you got that to look forward to. Hey, tonight we're in Matthew chapter 22. Last time we got down through verse 14, so we'll pick it up in verse 15 tonight. If you didn't bring a Bible, would you raise your hand? We would love to. This young lady right down here needs a Bible, Bob. Anybody else needs a Bible? Anybody need a Bible? Great. Hey, it's Memorial Day weekend. Let me just remind you tomorrow as you're eating watermelon and hanging out by the pool and doing the stuff that you're going to do tomorrow, hey, why don't you... Why don't you remember those that have fought for our country and have died in battle? And why don't you say a prayer for their families? Hey, you know, some big prices were paid so that we can eat watermelon tomorrow. You know, so that we can eat watermelon and we can go to the pool and, and we can enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy. So just keep that in the back of your mind tomorrow as you're having fun and enjoying things with your family. Matthew chapter 22, again, Lord, we ask that you bless our Bible study tonight by your Spirit, through your Word, in Jesus' name, amen. In February of 1994, Jacqueline Clinton, age 29, a resident of Toledo, Ohio, shot and killed her boyfriend. Yes, it happened. Miss Clinton said that the shooting occurred as they were arguing over the Bible. Now, based on my own experiences, it was probably once saved, always saved. Because <laughs> you can get into some real heated arguments over that topic. Whatever it was, it was one lethal Bible study, which is what we find here in Matthew 22. You see, here's what happened. The Jewish religious leaders, they approached Jesus with a series of biblical brain twist teasers. 
They had gotten together and they had come up with these tricky theological points they were going to test him with. Their goal was to try to trip up Jesus and find a reason to accuse him. As a matter of fact, they approach this encounter with their guns loaded. Their intentions are criminal. Jesus has driven out their marketeers and their money changers. Now it's their time to exact some revenge on Jesus. Remember, after Jesus cleansed the temple, back in chapter 21, the Jewish leaders questioned his authority. Jesus replied with three parables which exposed the sin of the Jewish leaders. The first parable we talked about this morning, you can sum it up by saying, repentant sinners were closer to God's kingdom than self-righteous Jews. The next parable, the Jews were the wicked men who tried to steal the vineyard from its owner. And then the last parable, the leaders of the Jews were the guests invited to the wedding that refused to come. You see, the Jews had questioned Jesus' authority. And in turn, He had discredited them. He had exposed their sin and their self-righteousness through these parables. But I'm telling you, these chief priests, they were some tough old birds. And they were not going to go away without a fight. So between verses 14 and 15, they regroup. These men are scholars, remember. They're experts in the Old Testament. They're graduates from the very best yeshivas. To them, Jesus was an uneducated country bumpkin way off from Nazareth. It was time to put him in his place. (laughs) They had no idea they were about to argue the Bible with its author. (laughs) Imagine debating theology with the theos. When you match wits with God, trust me, you end up the dimwit. That's what we're going to find here in the rest of chapter 22. Let's pick it up in verse 15. Well, then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Now talk about strange bedfellows. Pharisees and Herodians were the ultimate odd couple. Here were two extremes. The Pharisees were the Jewish loyalists. Their concerns were religious The Herodians were Roman collaborators. Their concerns were political. These were mortal enemies that came together, that teamed up to confront Jesus. And though they didn't realize it, in grilling Jesus, they were fulfilling Scripture. It's interesting, the day Jesus made His entry into Jerusalem was the day that the Jews selected a Passover lamb. In shouting Hosanna, inhaling Jesus as their Messiah, the crowd that lined the road down the Mount of Olives chose Jesus as their sacrifice. But it's interesting. Once the Lamb was selected, the next five days were set aside to inspect the Lamb for any blemish or any defect. Here, without realizing it, the Jewish leaders were doing the same. They were placing their Passover Lamb under examination. And they say, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Of course, this was true, but I hope you hear their phony flattery in those words. They're trying to butter up Jesus just before they stab him with the butter knife. In verse 17, the quiz begins. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this was a 
carefully crafted question. Either way, Jesus answered the Jewish leaders thought that they had him. If he said, yes, pay your taxes, the Jews then could discredit him as a traitor to Rome, even as an idolater. The Roman emperor claimed to be divine, and to pay him tribute was to worship an idol. Oh, if Jesus said yes, the Pharisees had him. The Herodians, though, they were hoping that Jesus said, no, don't pay your taxes. For this was considered high treason by the Romans. Rome was tolerant of various religious views, but when it came to political allegiances, Rome was unbending. In fact, any hint of rebellion, and Jesus would have been arrested and executed. That's why, yes or no, either way he answered, Jesus would be trapped. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. A denarius was a small silver coin about the size of a dime. It weighed 3.8 grams. Everyone in the empire had to pay a denarius to the Roman government to merely exist. Be glad we don't have an existence tax. That's what this was. Jesus holds up the denarius and he asks, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. On one side of the denarius was the bust of the Caesar in Rome. And it had written the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The other side of the coin read, Pontifex Maximus, which was Latin for chief priest. Of course, this was offensive to the Jewish chief priests. There was no doubt this coin was dedicated to a pagan emperor. But then Jesus utters an ingenious comeback. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What a fabulous response. In a single sentence, he eludes a tricky question. You see, in the ancient world, coins were considered the property of the person whose image was on the coin. Therefore, Jesus is saying, okay, if this coin belongs to Caesar, well then give it back to him. But in addition, give to God what belongs to God. And what, I might ask, bears the image of God? What bears God's image? Not a coin, but you and me. We bear the image of God. In the beginning, Adam and Eve, male and female, were made in the image of God. Thus, though our money might belong to Caesar, our very lives belong to God. Brilliant. In amazing brevity and conciseness, Jesus makes some profound statements here. Notice, first of all, Jesus affirmed God's sovereignty over Caesar. You know, government might have a demand on your money, but God has a demand on your entire life. Caesar rules in one area of life. God governs our total existence. This silenced the Pharisees. And yet Jesus' statement also quieted the Herodians. It also affirmed that Caesar does have a place in God's plan. Though God is superior to Caesar, civil government is still valid. We have a dual obligation to both secular and sacred authorities. 
Later in Romans chapter 13, Paul is going to explain more fully the Christian's relationship with government. He's going to make it clear that our obligation to God far outweighs our duty to Caesar. And yet Jesus laid the foundation for all of Paul's thoughts right here in this single statement. Notice verse 22. When they had heard these words, you know, their reaction was the same as ours. They marveled and they left him and went their way. Jesus' answer was a true stroke of genius. The people recognized it and they marveled. I like what commentator Kent Hughes writes. The statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but it is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. It was decisive and determinative in shaping Western civilization. It's interesting. Jesus took a trick question and he turned it into a blueprint for civilization. Round one goes to Jesus. Verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, which was another sect of the Jews who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him. Now, the Sadducees were the Jewish liberals. They were the naturalists, the rationalists. They refused to believe in anything supernatural, which included the angels and the resurrection. In addition, they only took seriously the Torah, the first five books of Moses. They refused to consider the rest of the Old Testament as inspired by God. What was even worse was their pompous attitude. I mean, the Sadducees were known for their pride and their haughtiness. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he wrote this, The Sadducees are, even among themselves, rather crude in their behavior. And in their communication with their peers, they are rude. They were a bunch of stuck-up, snobby, know-it-all rich kids. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This enabled the inheritance laws in the Old Testament. This was the basis for those inheritance laws. It kept property in the family. It was called the law of the Liverite, taught in the Old Testament and practiced in the law and practiced through the Old Testament. Now, based on this law, they pose a scenario. Now, there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now remember, the Sadducees didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. You know I had to squeeze that in there somewhere, you know. The scenario that's mentioned here was sort of a stock question that the Pharisees would use and the Sadducees would use in their debates with the Pharisees. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. And so the Sadducees would use this stock scenario to sort of point out the perplexities that might exist if you did accept the notion of, the, of eternal life. Now Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. 
In other words, you haven't been reading your Bibles, have you? I love, I love this. This is such an insightful point on Jesus' part. He points out that every theological heresy is a weed that grows from one of two roots. Notice this. It's either an ignorance of Scripture or it's a denial of the power of God. Every heresy is one of the two. It's an ignorance of Scripture or it's a denial of God's power. It's ignorance or arrogance. Heretics deny the creation and the miracles and Jesus' virgin birth and the resurrection. Why? Because they deny God's power. They want to refute the Trinity and the need for blood atonement and the return of Jesus. Why? Because they don't understand the Scriptures. You see, all heresy grows out of either an ignorance of Scripture or a denial of God's power. Now, Jesus continues His answer in verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Now, there are some married couples that have problems with this verse. There are other married couples who see it as a great relief. No marriage in heaven. I would imagine for most married couples, it probably changes from day to day. <laughs> hey, heaven, here's what, married people, here's what married people need to know. Despite how good a marriage is on earth, in heaven, relationships will be deeper and more satisfying than even the relationship you have with your spouse here. Understand this, in heaven, all earthly relationships thought will never cross your mind when you get to heaven heaven will be so out of this world i mean it'll blow your mind we will not be cheated in heaven trust me if jesus says that that we won't need marriage in heaven we won't need it our dominant interest in heaven 
will be our Lord Jesus. Well, he continues here in verse 31. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying? It's interesting, Jesus could have turned to numerous passages in the Old Testament to offer proof of the resurrection. But remember, the Sadducees, they only accepted the first five books, the Law of Moses. Thus, Jesus quotes from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 to prove his point. The Almighty says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now remember, Moses lived 500 years after Abraham. Yet God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Not I was the God of Abraham. The present tense implied that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive. In other words, there is life after death. Round two goes to Jesus. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Sadducees got Trump. Now it's the Pharisees' turn. And the Pharisees know three strikes and you're out. Desire, emotion, intellect. God doesn't want a mechanical relationship with His people. 
He doesn't want little robots shuffling around in rote obedience. He wants us to serve Him with passion and with purpose. You know, is God your supreme desire? Do you love Him with your heart? Is God the object of your affections? Do you love Him with your soul? Is God the center of your thoughts? Do you love Him with your mind? Do you love God with all you've got? That's the first and great commandment. Now, no Jew would have debated that the greatest commandment was to love God. But here's what was so provocative about Jesus' answer. Not only does he answer the lawyer's question, Jesus gives him a second commandment. Jesus quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18, and the second is like it, or literally linked 